Welcome to Primarily 2020, the podcast that's all about the politics, policies, and personalities of the 2020 Democratic primary. I'm your host, Karen Robinson. I think that one in Denver was considered a, a success because it was really smartly handled by the campaign, right? They treated it as a an opportunity to help with their local organizing in that state. So they, you know, they gave a lot of kind of organizer training they did a lot of really good local media work to to talk to activists and enthusiasts in the state and i think from that point of view it can be really smart and effective i think it's you're right it's not necessarily so simple as you just show up for example in the chicago convention of 1968 when yeah. you know <laughs> Fairly that, that wasn't not a great time <laughs> but what do you think skylar um i think that where you hold the convention is more symbolic than it is anything. It shows that you are invested in that state um, and that you are willing to put the resources into uh, a particular uh, city or region. Um, cities vie for conventions uh, for both parties um, because of the economic boom that comes along with them. And so in that way, it is really beneficial to the local economy. You can generate some goodwill. But I think, Karen, you're absolutely right that the, the real um, benefit of holding a convention in a swing state is that you have the party apparatus there and can help with local organizers and um, with the local party. I don't know that it really matters a whole lot um, in the long run. But it certainly helps with the ground game. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely true that historically convention bumps, there usually are bumps associated with the convention in polling improvement for the candidate um, who's being nominated. But it tends to be short-lived and is gone long before mm -hmm. November. So I think it's that infrastructure that matters more. Um, and having said that, so does it matter that much if it's moved? Is it even going to happen? Um, I think my bigger worry is if we have to cancel at the last minute, that's a lot of Wisconsin vendors who have been relying upon income from the party. Um, it then gets really difficult. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll have to cancel. We'll have to pay out a lot of vendors. Um, we need to make sure that we're really treating the people well, as we always should, of course, um, in those diff difficult circumstances, because, you know, there's the, the, there's desperately needed cash. I mean, the local economy everywhere is is decimated. Um, so the cash that the party brings in is, is probably much needed. And I bet there are a lot of local vendors in Wisconsin hoping that the convention can go ahead. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure that especially there in Milwaukee that, that you're right, that those vendors are really banking on it, especially now, like you said, they've been closed for so long, so many of them, um, that would really be a boon to them. Um, I think it's a little, <clears throat> well, I don't want to say that it's irresponsible for the parties to be still planning conventions. They are an important part of our civic tradition, um, and they play an important part, obviously, in nominating uh, candidates for president to represent both of the parties. But I, I, I do hope that they're keeping an eye on things and that they will cancel early enough out that, that everyone can make the adjustments necessary. Because it, at this point, it just seems like neither one is going to happen. I mean, we're seeing music festivals canceled mm -hmm. that are months and months out. You know, I don't see why a convention is any different. Um, yeah. I, I, I mean, worry about that. I worry that we're not being realistic. Um, but... I guess we're all working as best we can with. 
I mean, there is to, to some extent uh, a, a process problem, which is that you know the the party's um, the party's delegate selection plan calls for an in person convention. Um, I'm not sure that we can do the formal business of the convention remotely, or at least that we have approved to do so. So it might be, I'm sure DNC lawyers are right now um, quickly looking at what changes they would need to make to the rules um, in order to allow for that, um, which if Senator Sanders is still still feeling still feisty Sanders at that time, <laughs> he, might, uh, he might make that easier or more difficult if we need to make any late rule changes. Because formally, you're supposed to show up. I mean, formally, votes are meant to be cast in person at the convention. Mm -hmm. You don't need all the other stuff, but there is a, a formal process of, of nominating the candidate, which is which is built into the party rules. Do they have to have a full complement of delegates? Could they just have, like, one representative delegate from each state standing two metres apart from each other? Also a great question. I mean, again, according to the current rules, yes. Um whether that could be amended or adapted or whether they could allow for proxy voting or remote voting, I'm sure they could, but that's not how it works at the moment. All tricky. I mean, Democrats abroad have, have already switched to um, remote voting for their um, regional, for their delegate selection process. Um, so having already completed their, their primary vote, we're now selecting delegates by an entirely remote process where previously we were intending to have regional caucuses and uh, global caucuses. Is that your cat, Emma? No, no, no it's I'm my cat. Okay, who is torturing that cat? <laughs> no one is torturing her. She just has recently discovered her voice like Ariel and the Little Mermaid uh, and, 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 and will not shut up, I swear. Find yeah, that cat a prince to marry ASAP. My uh, smudge is perfectly happy curled up on my armchair, which is a new spot for her. She doesn't usually sit there. I think it's because that's where the sun's fallen. <laughs> my cat was walking back and forth in front of the microphone, but has now given up on me and gone away. Yeah. <laughs> I have to admit, I, I could only vaguely hear it, and I thought it was uh, Sophie coming. <laughs> no, that was Erica Kane, my cat, and she she if there's a door closed anywhere in the house, she screams bloody murder. Oh, she cannot she stand. Exactly she will not have it. <laughs> yeah, like the so. legendary Erica Kane of soap opera fame, she is a massive drama queen, is what you're saying. <laughs> yes, yes, very much. After Barbara. her namesake. Right. Anyway, but back to the state of Wisconsin. Yes. <laughs> um, there's a there's another coronavirus related um, Wisconsin crisis in the making, which is that the state of Wisconsin is scheduled to have its election on Tuesday, which would include both the Wisconsin state primary and also some local elections, including some federal judges, um, which are up for a state election. Um, a group of people of voters had requested that the that the primary um, election be delayed, um, but just recently, a couple of days ago, a federal judge ruled that no, the election should go ahead as planned. But he did extend the uh, deadline for absentee ballot voting. Voting. Um, what do you think about that, Emma? It feels worrying to me that we're having lots of people gather at polling places. It's a terrible idea. Um, I mean, democracy is really, really important, but for God's sake, introduce vote by mail for a start. Um, and secondly, you know, we know who's going to bloody win. If Sanders has a responsible bone in his body, surely he stands down now so that we don't have to continue this charade and putting people at risk to vote in a primary that doesn't mean anything. 
Yeah, I mean, the primary point is absolutely fair. But to be fair, it isn't just Sanders uh, Sanders v. Biden. There are actually offices up for election in the Tuesday, in the Tuesday election, um, including federal judgeships, which one of the concerns that people have is that um, the the bulk of the in-person voting historically has been in Milwaukee and other more democratic-leaning and African-American-leaning neighborhoods. Um, the, pos- the prospect of disenfranchising those people um, is problematic, especially since we've the people of Wisconsin have made no effort, as far as I can see, to 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 pursue um, postal ballots as an as an alternative. Um, they should just post. They should just mail a ballot to every every citizen in Wisconsin. They, yeah. they should just send them one. <laughs> like, Absolutely, it's doable. It, it is doable. I didn't know you elected your judges. How, could I stand to be a judge? Can anyone be? Can I just go? <laughs> hey, that's so, good. That's bad. Some places, that. some places do. Some places don't. Wow. You yeah. don't have to have like a legal training or anything. It's you know what? It's super crazy. You're not wrong to be shot. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. Yeah, we, we get... Because remember Roy Moore, the pedophile... Oh, <laughs> yeah, pedophile co- com- Ten Commandments uh, monument uh, celebrating. He was an elected federal judge in Alabama. And, uh, but, you know, but but actually, you know, a qualified lawyer at least. So there's that. Oh, right. Anyway, um, but sorry. I mean, it, wor- it worries me. It worries me for November, too. Um, because it is entirely plausible indeed fairly likely that we might still be in the midst of a uh, either either still in the midst of the current flattened curve of virus or in a resurgence um as was predicted for for autumn we just need to get postal batting in place around the country but that would require each and every state to separately approve the process because of how our voting system is federalized it's it's a nightmare yeah um if you know uh was it yesterday the story broke that uh, David Rostin, who is the speaker of the Georgia uh, State House, was complaining that postal votes would be devastating for Republicans because it would drive up voter turnout. Yeah. Um, and that's going to be the stumbling block to postal votes, I think, I- anywhere in the country, is that it, it makes it easier to vote, and Republicans really don't want to make it easier to vote <laughs> because when they do, they lose. Mm. So. Um, but but I think that this is going to be one of the consequences of the current pandemic in the United States is we're going to look at the way that we hold elections. Um, and I think there will be more demand for a, a universal postal vote, um, which is not a bad thing because, again, like I said, I mean, it might be bad for Republicans if more people vote but overall for democracy it's a good thing if more people can vote um but it's also a much more secure system if everyone is using a paper ballot that you know russia can't hack um and i'm not saying that russia hacked the 2016 election but we know that they wanted to and we know other other nation states have an interest in tampering with elections around the world so going to a paper ballot that everyone mails in is worth looking at i think going forward and i hope that we will i don't obviously it's not it's too late for wisconsin for their primary but 
Yeah, and we should say the state of Washington has for many years now run an entirely postal election campaign, uh, election process, and they have had a lot of success with it. But it's popular, it's well liked, it, uh, voter turnout in, Wisconsin, in the state of Washington is some of the best in the country. Um, it's easy and kind of well managed. Um, so yeah, it, it's doable. <laughs> Yeah, I I voted for I voted absentee for the first time in 2016 because I was actually I was in the UK on election day so I wasn't going to be able to vote and it made me want to vote by mail every time because I didn't have to wait in a line. I got to do it on my own time. <laughs> if the weather was bad, I didn't have to get out in the cold. It was wonderful. I I I a big fan of postal votes. Yeah, I mean, I'm sentimental about polling places, but I am fully aware that that's just me being extremely privileged. You know, I do that whole, like, the ritual of democracy. I take my daughter, we go down, we get the sticker. It feels good, but I don't think my own good feeling is worth, you know, the crippling threat to democracy. You know, if I have to trade them off, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll let it go. <laughs> I mean, that's it, isn't it? I, 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 I always vote in person because I love voting. But it just right now, we have, there's lots of things I love to do, um, most of which I will not mention on this podcast, um, <laughs> that I'm not able to do right now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is the new normal. We all have to sort of hunker down and, and, and accept that, that the things that we did before, are we can't do now. Everything is going to have to change. We're going to have to make adjustments in all walks of life. And in one of those walks of life is our democracy and, and how it functions. And we have to be prepared to make sure that it is still functioning, even under these extraordinary circumstances. And I don't think that our politicians and our elected officials have really caught up with that. Um, the president certainly hasn't. Well... <laughs> Speaking of the president, <laughs> we have to talk a little bit about the impact of this crisis on President Trump's approval rating, um, because I've I've seen a lot of um, so the polling suggests that the president is getting a very small increase in his approval rating um, very recently in light of the uh, Corona crisis. Now, there are a couple of different ways of looking at this. Now, Rachel Bidikoffer talked about this a little bit on last week's podcast. Um, but if you look at it in terms of comparing it to other moments of national crisis, he has had a much smaller, um, so to speak, bump or improvement in his favorability rating. If you compare it to other national leaders who are currently coping with the, this crisis, the corona crisis, um, he's had a much smaller bump than any of them. And if you if you look at his favorability and its relationship to his um, actual head to head polling, um, none of that improvement in favorability is showing up in his vote in people's voting intention. So my interpretation, which I would like to throw out to you um, to tell me if it's just wishful thinking, but my interpretation is that he's getting a generalized sense of let's all try and pull together, but a very weak one. Um, and that none of the people, um, and that, 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 that basically his, his electoral prospects for November are getting worse, not better. Am I being too wishful thinking on that? I think that probably is the motivation, um, but that may not, basically I think Democrats need a partisan moment in November and if the country's not feeling that partisan because we're all in this together and we want the president 
how whoever he is, however awful we normally think of him as, um, to be the guy that's in charge. It may be hard to change course. So while I I agree with your analysis of why this is as it is, I I worry that um, it being as it is will last. I guess my what I mean to what you just said, if it is a nonpartisan moment in November and people feel like they just want the country to come together, that feels bad for Trump because he is the more partisan of the two figures running. I mean, Joe Biden is the one who's better able to carry off a we're all Americans, let's all come together vibe. Trump doesn't have it in his bones. Like, there's nothing in him that allows him to do that. No, that's true. Um, I just... So I I keep thinking about after 9-11, I was in California, and my friend Sophie, who is lefty as hell, um, I remember her saying, you know what? I'm really glad that... um, they didn't get the president. No. We all need to come together at this time. And I was thinking, gosh, you know, that is just, you just wouldn't, if even Sophie is talking like that, then there is, then, I, then Bush is going to get reelected. Right. I'm going to talk to myself. I, I I do think that there is one key difference between this and 9-11 though. And it's in 9-11, we were attacked by uh, a, a foreign enemy if you will um you know we were attacked by a terrorist cell but it was sort of painted as this this outside foreign invasion the first attack on the homeland since pearl harbor um and and that is the key difference because this is a public health crisis and i think the country looks at a public health crisis in a very different way than it looks at what was tantamount to an act of war um i do think there is you know trump's approval rating i think the bump is twofold one is rallying around the flag that that is happening but the other is people who are just tuning into his daily briefings are getting reassured i've watched his daily briefings and, and and been somewhat reassured by what he's saying until you fact check it and realize that it's all a load of hogwash you know the man is just lying to us so i think that that is kind of what's responsible for his um you will need to wait for his 10 minutes, approval okay? ratings more than anything else Mom, my biggest fear in november is that we're going to see what we saw in 2004 when it was already painfully aware or painfully clear that the Iraq war was a massive mistake. But I heard time and time again, as I knocked on doors for, for John Kerry and spoke to voters for him in 2004, that they were going to vote for George Bush because they thought he ought to clean up the mess that he made. Mm-hmm. And that is my fear is that voters are going to say, you know what? Donald Trump made this mess. He should be the one to clean it up. He broke um, it, let's he give it. him a chance. Yeah. And uh, but but I also think that, you know, it's a long way to November and we don't know, aside from the coronavirus uh, crisis that we're in right now, and we don't know how bad that's going to get. Um, I pray that it doesn't get too bad, but we don't know. Um, we have an economy that's in shambles. We don't know what that's going to look like. We don't know what foreign policy is going to look like after this. Everything's sort of in detente right now. But once we're out of the thick of this, how are things going to look between us and China? How are things going yeah. to look between Britain and the EU? Um, these are all 
you know, questions that are sort of on pause right now that are going to influence the the November election in one way or another. Um, how's Saudi Arabia going to act once the oil uh, market sort of stabilizes? Or how's it going to react if it doesn't? Mm. I, I think that's right. I think no matter what else, even under the best, most optimistic of all possible scenarios, I cannot envision a world in which the United States is not dealing with a crippling, crippling economic depression, um, at least recession, probably depression, massive unemployment um, and, and a recovery. I also think that Trump has has fed Democrats a lot of fodder for a very negative campaign um, in November, just with his quote, the things he's been saying about coronavirus since the beginning. I mean, we have him on record on television denying the seriousness of this threat over and over and over again. And I think, you know, there are ready-made adverts, which the Biden campaign has already started rolling out that that bring that to life. Mm Mm-hmm. Listen, um, I've got just a few minutes left here because I need to wrap up and go deal with <laughs> Corona-related childcare issues um, with stir-crazy, stir-crazy seven-year-olds. Um, but before we go, the the primary is not technically over, and that Bernie Sanders is still in the race. Um, but he has mathematically virtually no chance of, of, of winning a plurality of votes, to, let alone a majority outright. Um, at this moment of, uh, of, of campaign reflection, um, we've now seen a, a very lengthy piece come out in the Huffington Post this week, which I found really fascinating, digging into some of the things that happened behind the scenes of the Sanders campaign. Um, the thrust of the article was um, the, you know, the, the problems that, that Sanders campaign had. Um, the the challenges that he had in expanding his coalition, some of the personal characteristics of the candidate that might have held them back. For this week's gut check game, I have pulled out uh, some quotes from that interview, that article, series of interviews with uh, Democratic strategists, and I just thought I'd uh, I'd select one and we can just quickly get check our guts as to whether these quotes seem fair, unfair, right or wrong. Um, do they reflect the campaign that we thought we were watching? All sound good. Sounds good to me. Can mm-hmm. I just clarify about the article or something? Um, yeah. There, there are Sanders staffers quoted it in it, aren't there? Yeah, there are. So there are actual Sanders staffers. There are people aligned with the Sanders campaign. There are people who work for organizations that endorsed Sanders. And then there are just general Democratic strategists. Some of them are anonymous. Some of them are not anonymous. It's just it's it's always a sign for me that something's over when you start getting debriefings. Yeah. Because it is yeah. people back covering, isn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Everybody wants to think about their next job now. Yeah. Right. Okay. So in my trusty Red Sox baseball cap, I've got these papers. I will pull one out. Okay. Here's the first one. This is an interesting one. This is from a senior official in a progressive organization. See, anonymous sources. <laughs> and he or she says... Elections are about organizing people where they are at. In the course of an election, indulging the impulse to teach people new ideas and illustrate modes of oppression they don't yet understand almost always diminishes our chances of winning. Oh, yes. 100% (laughs) agree. Amen to that. Yeah. Uh, And, you know, uh, if you want to see how that goes, look at Britain. 
Yes. Um, that that's something that I think the the left in the United States, uh, especially um, also in the UK, but especially in the US, has to learn the hard way, is that you have to build the framework uh, for progressive left wing politics all the time. You can't just do it at elections. And it starts at the ground, at, at the grassroots level. Um, you don't start electing Green Party members or socialists to the White House. You start by electing them to school board and mm. town hall. Uh, and that is not something that I have seen the left in this country really want to do. Um, so yes, yes, yes. Whoever said that is a genius. <laughs> well yes. done, anonymous staffer. If we knew your yeah. name, we would praise you. Right, here's another interesting one. This is just described as a pro-Sanders strategist. If you constantly describe yourself as marginalized, people start to think of you as marginalized and that maybe you shouldn't be in charge. Interesting. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, that is interesting because there are two different elections and they, um, certainly in the UK, they've been fought in, two different ways I guess so we have this huge underdog thing in the UK so if you can be the underdog um then you know you would just oh we love you we'll totally like uh vote for you and that's Corbyn played that really well in the Labour Party even when he was in charge of everything he was the outsider underdog couldn't get anything he wanted that's why everything was going wrong it was always somebody else's fault I don't feel like America because of your sort of rugged individualism thing, you don't have that much of, of a love for the underdog, I think. Mm -hmm. I may be wrong in saying that. Um, so I think that that didn't work so well for Bernie. It works when he did it against Clinton, but that was more about Clinton than, than it was about Bernie. And he still didn't win. Um, and he just didn't expand his coalition enough. Yeah, and I think it's hard to make the underdog argument in 2020 it was easier in 2016 than this year because there were so many people running pete Buttigieg was uh, an underdog and yet he did remarkably well so mm. the argument just didn't hold as much water this time around as it did the last time yeah. around when sanders stood in much starker contrast to the quote-unquote establishment candidate um I don't know if I, I mean, I, I think that Americans in general, and I think that the British uh, public is much the same way. They just don't have a, a lot of time for belly aching. Um, it is a candidate's job to overcome whatever hurdles are in their way. And if you don't do it, that's on you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's right. And I think also, I mean, Bernie Sanders has had a very long career in politics. If he, to me, it never made sense to me that he was saying, I'm a scrappy upstart. I'm an underdog. You've been in Congress for 30 plus years. If in that time you have not been able to put yourself in charge of something, then it's on you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah, right. Like, like, you want to be president of the United States, you have to demonstrate that you have moved yourself up into a leadership position between your first mile moment in politics and now. You know, if you're a 37-year-old mayor from South Bend, Indiana, I'm going to give you some leeway on the fact that, you know, <laughs> you're building power. If you're a you know experienced senator who's describing yourself as an upstart, that just means you haven't worked very well in the Senate. I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm yeah. 
I think it also it demonstrates his inability, as I say again, to build coalitions. Yeah. And the Democratic Party is a really broad party, and it runs from you know Joe Biden to Bernie Sanders. Oh. Someone's on fire. <laughs> <laughs> meeting the people where they're at that includes the people of the democratic party now i don't think bernie sanders should be inauthentic but he does need to learn that not everybody is going to be as pure in their form of politics or that other forms of politics aren't pure in and of themselves people aren't centrists because they would be on the left but they're a bit too scared they just have a different set belief set Um, so I just I think that there was a real you know as you say the the long term nature of his career as a backbencher essentially or what we'd call a backbencher over here um, just means that actually what he's demonstrating is his inability to um, to do the things to be the convener. Now, what I would say in praise of, of Bernie Sanders is that Bernie Sanders has pushed Joe Biden to a place where he's going to be running on a really progressive um, agenda. And that's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, and you know the, the change in the Democratic Party m- moving away from centrism towards this more soft left is a huge achievement of Bernie Sanders. And he should absolutely be very, very proud and take that win. Whether he will take that win or not, I don't know. But he should be proud. I've got a quote here that might speak to that a little bit. Uh, So this is from another anonymous pro-Sanders progressive strategist. His greatest strength is his greatest weakness, which is that his independence and stubbornness means he's not agile enough to respond to shifting moods. Well, this is what happens when you um, insist on ideological purity. And and I I see in Bernie Sanders uh, a little bit of a, a messiah complex um that that he alone is god that's a very trumpian phrase i alone am able to address this or fix this but i've always kind of gotten that feeling from sanders that 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 he really thinks that he is the person to lead the the revolution or to lead this movement towards uh democratic socialism and and i'm not sure that that he is because i think he is very obtuse And that has cost him. People see that. People see that he is not willing to really work within the system. Um, And that is a feature. That is not a glitch. He would probably rather burn the system to the ground, I think, than than compromise to get legislation passed. And we've seen that because he has no significant accomplishments within Congress. So, uh, yeah, I think uh, that's that's a pretty accurate observation of him. Um, Go ahead. If um if he'd been if he'd been serious about change, uh, I think you're absolutely right, Scarlett. Because if he'd looked around and thought, how can I best get the most of my agenda onto into the White House, he could have thrown himself behind Elizabeth Warren, mm-hmm. uh, who had a better ability to to reach across and convene, and they could have uh, united 
that part of the party. But there were too many people who just thought it was only Bernie who could do it. And the problem when you throw your weight behind one singular person who then fails is it feels like your whole politics has failed. And that doesn't necessarily have to be the case. And I've been having this conversation a lot in the UK at the moment. We're, we're going to announce the leader of the Labour Party tomorrow, yeah. as we're at the time of taping. You probably will, have, will know it by the time of, of listening. And it's unlikely that the chosen successor from the Corbynite wing is going to win. But that doesn't mean that they haven't had significant policy achievements within the party and that they don't continue to have an influence on the debate. But because there's going to be a huge moment of pram toy throwing, they're going to lose the chance to claim that. Yeah. Declare yeah. victory. Yeah. I've got, I've got a quote here that touches on Elizabeth Warren, since you brought her up. This is actually from a named person, a lady called Rebecca Katz, who's a progressive strategist. She says, what we saw from the Elizabeth Warren campaign was that a progressive candidate could have a big, competent operation. The Sanders campaign never had a similar organized structure, and that hurt them in the end. Thoughts Did on that? I'm not entirely not sure, so sure I would call Elizabeth Warren's operation competent, but um, I think she is competent. Um, yeah. I think she made some very poor staffing decisions. Um, but yeah, I mean, she certainly ran a I more traditional of, ground game. I think the context of the quote in that article was they were talking about there was a period when Elizabeth Warren's team were systematically releasing detailed policy announcements in a very kind of like well-targeted way so that they were dominating media coverage for quite a while there um, and that was kind of flagged by this in this article as being a, a, a really effective approach whereas Sanders by contrast was was described as having kind of less structured policy rollouts. Well, yeah, I, I think that that's fair. Um, and I also think that, you know, I, I wonder if Bernie Sanders had run the same campaign that he ran without the name recognition that he had, how far would he have actually gotten? Mm -hmm. um, you know, so I think that he sort of coasted on his name more so than a candidate less well-known could have. But I don't know. I mean, he, he outlasted my candidate, Elizabeth Warren, he outlasted most everyone. So, yeah, I mean, um, fair play. You know? Well, he's outlasted a lot of people, but not to the extent that he's actually going to win anything. I mean, I'm not sure you get prizes for longevity in this. Yeah, it's, I guess it's what, measure, what standard are we measuring people by? Because if you're measuring it by the standard of improvement, um, improvement on your starting position, then he's done very badly, right? Yeah. Because... yes. Last time he was a very, you know, a fairly close runner up. He's actually further behind Joe Biden this time than he was behind Hillary Clinton last time. And then you take, you know, an Elizabeth Warren or a Pete Buttigieg and you say, well, actually, both of them did pretty well from a starting, you know, Buttig Buttigieg did very well from a starting position. Yeah. I think Warren, you could argue, didn't do as well as, as she ought to have on paper. Um, but yeah, that feels like a more fair standard to judge than kind of just arbitrarily do they win or not win. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, and in that way, you know, Pete Buttigieg definitely, I think, out of all of the candidates, probably did much better than any, you know, 
by that metric than anyone else. Um, and Elizabeth Warren did did fairly well by it as well. I mean, she was the fourth. She was down to, to the final four. Yeah. Yeah. Um, final three, really, if you discount Tulsi Gabbard, which I think people <laughs> <can> do. Uh, <laughs> so you know, if Karen this was Big Brother, Tulsi she would have gotten an interview. I acknowledge with that Tulsi the... Gabbard exists. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But um, and to her credit, she has endorsed Joe Biden and doesn't seem to be making trouble, which is all I ask of her. So really well done. Surprised me. That really surprised me as well. I did not see I, that coming. I, yeah. I I credit where it's due. She gained some respect in my eyes uh, by doing that. Um, I I really wonder what she's sort of her angle is because I still don't entirely trust her but <laughs> um yeah I mean it, but that's just another one of the wild curveballs uh, of, of this election I mean so far it's been a roller coaster the one thing I'll say is I, I do hope that Bernie Sanders will drop out soon a because we don't need uh to drag out voters in a time when you know there's a deadly virus going around but but b because it's over and we yeah. need to coalesce and we need to have what is essentially a leader of the opposition uh, to to counter Donald Trump, who is on TV every night mm. um, speaking a load of rubbish to the nation that that is harmful and is also free uh, campaign advertising. And so it would be nice if we could just all coalesce around Joe Biden. There's three of us on here. Neither one of us supported him for the nomination. I know, you know, not everyone's happy with it, but we are where we are. Let's just let's just get on with it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. yeah. It's time. Let's just put us out of our misery and switch to a general election footing. But the thing is, it doesn't feel like that's what's happening. I do not get a dropping out vibe from Sanders. It feels like he thinks oh, this he's is not his moment anywhere. to talk Medicare for all. He's yeah. Well, and he might be right about that. I mean, I think that definitely Medicare for all's time has come. Um, I, I I said the other day and I, I think it was on Twitter. So it, nobody probably saw it because, um, you know, you're, we're all just yelling into a void. When we <laughs> tweet. But I had said previously um, that Medicare for all was a pipe dream because the American people were not there yet and that America only does big structural change once or twice a century. We did it in the New Deal in the 1930s as a response to the Great Depression, and we did it again in the 1960s with the sexual revolution, with the civil rights movement, um, in response to a whole host of political crises, you know, the civil rights movement women's rights, the burgeoning gay rights movement, Vietnam. Um, I didn't think that 2020 was going to be one of those years. Um, and then we had a pandemic. Yeah. And that's just sort of changed everything. So it might well be one of those years. And I think that now is the time for Democrats uh, across the country from the top of the ballot on down to get behind some really bold, progressive structural changes because we can actually accomplish them. There's going to be an appetite for it. 30 million Americans, is it, lost their jobs? Yeah. Is that is that the number? How many of them also lost health insurance with that? Yeah. Now's the time. I mean, it does feel right for the, that the time is right for social change, for big structural change, 100%. I think my problem has always been that I want big structural change and I want it to be run by people I have confidence in and Bernie didn't square that circle for me 
Um, Agreed. And, and that's the problem because big structural change is scary and people are not wrong to be afraid of big structural change because when you completely revamp the structure of society, it has to be done really well, right? You need It does. You need excellence at the helm. You need people there that you have are, great confidence in. And there are things that come up that the normal voter wouldn't necessarily think about. One of the yeah. things that... I hadn't even considered was switching to Medicare for all, which is, you know, for me, doesn't even go far enough. I, I'd love us to nationalize the hospitals. That's not going to happen. So Medicare for all is probably the next best thing. I have a friend from college who works in the health insurance industry, though, and she asked me point blank, well, what's going to happen to my job? That's a valid question. Yeah. Yeah, you that's know? the thing. I mean, it's 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 one thing to look at society and see what's wrong with it and identify big sweeping solutions. But there will be people who are hurt in every sweeping change. And mm -hmm. this is one of the reasons why minority voters tend to be more cautious about revolutionary change. It's because they're, they're aware of their experience of being caught up in the enthusiasm for societal innovations that rarely benefit them. Right? Yes. Like somehow or other, they always get squeezed. So they're like, you know what, let's just keep what we have and make it incrementally better in ways that we can keep an eye on and understand and process. And mm -hmm. I think that's not illegitimate. So I do think like big structural change is needed. And I think society has changed in such a negative way um, with wealth, 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 you know, wealth inequality, um, you know, that the healthcare system is broken, you know, higher education needs massive reform, like everything needs fixing. But I need to really believe that the people who are going to do it have thought about all these details, have thought about your friend, have thought about, you know, the knockout effects, the societies are, are prepared to be humble enough to recognize what they don't know yet. Um, and that that's a special kind of person. It is. And if I might say, um, I think Joe Biden is one of those people who, who can look at the nuance of a problem and, and look at the humanity of a problem yeah. from all angles. Um, he is very well suited for that. Yeah. If Bernie can drag him and it's not just Bernie, it's going to be Elizabeth Warren. It's going to be Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. It's going to be a whole host of, of people from the progressive wing of the Democratic Party really pulling Joe Biden to the left and saying, now is the time we need to do this. Mm -hmm. If they can manage that, Joe Biden could be one of the most consequential presidents in U.S. history, assuming we can get him elected. I think that's a great note to leave it on. Emma, do you have any final thoughts before we sign off? I don't think I can say anything as inspirational as that. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's, that's the perfect finishing touch. Skylar, Emma, thank you so much for your time. And um, I will talk to you next week. Stay safe. Stay well. Stay safe, Karen. Bye-bye. Bye. Take care. Bye. And that's it. I hope you're well. I hope you and your family are coping with this crisis um, as well as can be expected. Um, I'm thinking of all of you and wishing all the best for all of you. If you have not yet done so, please register to vote and request your absentee ballot. It's going to be even more important um, with this rolling crisis. In particular, try and request an absentee ballot if you absolutely can, because who knows what is going to happen. Um, other than that, uh, so in order to request your ballot, you can go to votefromabroad.org if you're an American abroad or vote.org if you're an American back home. 
You can always reach me on Twitter. I'm on, at Karen Jr. That's at K-A-R-I-N-J-R on Twitter. In the meantime, um, I would love to hear from you. But in the meantime, keep well, keep safe, 